Okay, well, we're at Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look beginning at verse, the last few verses, uh, 12 through 25, probably take us a couple of three Sunday mornings to get through these verses, but it is March the 4th, and this is lesson 19, I do believe, in our pursuits through Matthew. So we're going to keep going. We changed directions a little bit, having completed, of course, the baptism of Jesus and the temptations of Jesus. And if you look and study the scriptures regarding a timeline, uh, when you look at where we are right now, you know, since the angels came and ministered to him following his temptations, which is where we left off last week, there's been about a year or so, according to uh, the information I read. And of course, during that time, Jesus has been involved in some other things. He hasn't just been sitting down there by the Sea of Galilee. But during this year, quite a bit has happened. They don't normally equate this with his official ministry beginning. In fact, to me, it's a little confusing because if you look just at the word usage throughout, sometimes they talk about him teaching here, teaching there. And then they'll come back and say that he was actually preaching when he was there. And then they'll want to say, well, his actual public ministry began you know, right here at 17, where it says he began to preach repentance, which we'll, we'll get to eventually. All that's not super important. And what's important is that you know where he was and what he was doing and what he wasn't doing during that time. Uh, because there is a pattern. There's a design. There's something that God has set out. He, he made things happen at, at the right time. And we've talked about this throughout as we've uh, studied Matthew. You remember that Matthew's primary... Uh, theme is kingship. He presents Jesus as the long-awaited king, the Messiah. Uh, So perhaps, uh, as some of the authors and commentators say, perhaps when he gets to these things that he was doing in in Capernaum and Nazareth and the other places in Samaria, if they don't relate specifically to his kingship, then perhaps Matthew just went over those. He went to other material, which is what he does here. He skips a year. But it's interesting and I think necessary if we go back and look at just a little of those interactions that Jesus had. What was he doing during that time to kind of give us a picture of where he is right now in Matthew. So we'll look at some of those things as we go along. Well, what are some of them? And you can go to John's Gospel and see a pretty good pattern of the things that were occurring or had occurred during that year, and they're all very interesting to us. We could take these and study them uh, a couple of lessons each and learn a lot, Uh, but for sure he went through and he's calling some of his disciples. He calls Andrew. Now, this is from John's gospel. He calls Andrew, and then he calls uh, Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, Also, you've got the wedding at Canaan there, in uh, Cana rather, rather, in uh, chapter 2 where he turns the water in, into wine. He's involved in, in one of the incidents where he's cleansing the temple during that time. Of course, by the time you get up to John 3, we all know that he's dealing with uh, Nicodemus, who comes to him at night. I can't help. I was in, in my recent studies and so forth. You know, there's this, I don't know, if it had to do, if it was an auditory thing, we would call it an acoustical shadow, But there's something that happens in your brain sometimes. I don't know if it's just overload or whatever from information. But you forget the things that you know the most. You just 
thinking too hard. And I remember sitting in pastor's office one day as we were going through John, because what I tried to do with the Gospels is pretty much know something on each chapter. And um, I was rattling off, rattling off stuff. He said, John chapter 3. And I'm like, John chapter (laughs) 3. I know this, John chapter. And it did not click. (laughs) It's laughing. And you'll just say just say a word and boom, then it then it all clicks. So I've always used to tell my boys, I say, you when you're studying, you've got to practice remembering. Don't just wait to remember in your preparations at test time. Go through drills and so forth where you actually have to recall, you have to practice those things. Not just looking at a page and doing them to yourself. So these tests that Melissa's been giving me were quite quite valuable. But even with that, we're limited, and we, we're reminded sometimes. I couldn't help but think about that. I didn't know what John, I couldn't remember John 3.16. I mean, you know, anyway. So we're, we're limited. We're constantly reminded uh, that we can't do anything without Jesus' help, okay? Enough said about that. You've got the woman at the well as Jesus goes through Samaria. It talks about all these different places that he had been. And John doesn't record it, but, of course, he went back to Nazareth, and this is where he goes to his hometown. Now, Luke tells us about that, and we'll, we'll expound on that a little bit today if we, we have time. So these are some of the things that Jesus was doing during that time. You know, John's going to close out his gospel and saying, we can't, really don't have everything written down that Jesus did. And he uses a metaphor by saying, if we wrote down everything, the world wouldn't hold the books. Well, he's just saying, there's a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot. But we have what the Holy Spirit has given us, And we have it as it was intended through each and every writer, whether it's the Gospels or whatever. Of course, we know and and believe that. So that takes us up to verse 12 in chapter 4. And that begins by saying that when Jesus heard that John, talking about John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, that he withdrew into Galilee. He goes back into Galilee and... uh, on the heels of Herod, Herod Antipas, you know, arresting John the Baptist. And he mentions Galilee here. And I like, I'm not huge on the geography and so forth, but I do like to get a mental picture of what's going on when he mentions uh, Galilee here. Of course, when you're talking about the Sea of Galilee, I'm sure you know, it's really just a huge lake. Okay, you can't see across it. It's so big and it takes a long time to get across it. You'll also see it referred to as the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Gennesaret, same thing, Sea of Galilee. And if you look at it on a map, uh, <clears throat> let's just say that's the, the Sea of Galilee. Then, then Galilee goes over the top north just a little bit and comes around and, and goes under the bottom of it a little bit. It's like 60 miles this way and 30 miles this way. But most of it is to the west. You just got a little bit on the north and top. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Uh, it's a very, very fertile area. Uh, and when you think about the Middle East in that particular area, some of the historians, particularly Josephus, talks about Galilee and tells us what it looked like. And I don't know, it's just interesting to me to, to picture yourself on a a rock or an escarpment somewhere, a cliff, and looking out over and basically seeing what Jesus saw and what the other people were looking at. During that time, it's estimated that there were about 2 million people there. And I, that shocked me. I wouldn't have thought it would have been that much. Very rich, very fertile ground. If you get off the ground and get out into the water, you got a lot of 
fish, you know, all that industry was going on there. That's what our, many of our uh, disciples were doing. I didn't realize and, until I came across this in some study that Josephus, the historian, was actually the governor of Galilee at one time. Didn't know that. And he wrote about Galilee. And I got a quote here. He says, it is, throughout, it is throughout rich in soil and pasture, producing every variety of tree and inviting by its productivity even those who have the least inclination of agriculture. So this is an area that was just quite appealing, just a beautiful pastoral agricultural type of area. And uh, kind of gives you a picture of what's going on there. It is everywhere tilled and everywhere productive. Quite a place. So that's where uh, Jesus is now. He's finished his work. His baptism is behind him. The public uh, coming out, if you will, through baptism, the temptations. He's gone through those things. And now he's beginning his Teaching, I guess we would be accurate in saying he's moving up to the actual preaching if we want to stop and cut those or split those hairs a little bit. But at least this is the terminology that's used as we, as we go through. Because when he starts laying it out there, he's going to be talking about repentance. That's what he's going to start with. He's going to talk about changing your heart, changing your mind, changing your life, leaving the, the world behind, okay? Focusing upon, you know, in... Literally, God with us, God in this place, the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew's going to do all that he can do through the Holy Spirit to make that clear to us. When it speaks of him in verse 12 here uh, in Galilee, it says that he withdrew. And I don't know why, what encouraged me to go and look up that word, but I found it. It's the Greek word anacherio, and it, it's often used uh, in conjunction with escaping danger. Uh, and you may say, well, was he literally running or was he escaping from danger? This is one of the uses of the word. But uh, he, if you, you can go to John, and John uh, talks about the Pharisees getting after him during that time. And that when they uh, began to learn that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing more people than the Pharisees, that he left and went toward Galilee. Um, but you can't say that he was running, you know, perhaps from the influence of Herod because uh, Herod's over Galilee too. So he, if he was running from Herod, he would have gone somewhere else out of his jurisdiction. It's more appropriate to understand it this way. It's like I said, Jesus is going to be where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing at the right time in history. It's all been predetermined. You can look and say, yeah, but we've got, you know, events of his life were forcing him, if you will, this way, that way. What do we call that? God's in charge of all that. He's sovereign over all that. And we know that nothing could happen to Jesus until it was time for it to happen to Jesus. We'll see that later in Luke 4. When we get there, you know, they're going to come off a cliff, but they can't do that. And he miraculously escapes from them because his, his time had not yet come. And we see the hand of God working in and and through the Son of God, moving him through his life, just as it was uh, predicted, just as it was already laid out for him. So they could not take him. Along that line, it's interesting to look at as well a couple of verses from John, First John nineteen 11. You'll remember this, particularly when Jesus was before Pilate. And Pilate, and this is after the scourging, and Pilate is kind of put out with him, 
would be the indication he says something, you know, I don't want to act it out, but it's like, hey, don't you know that I have the power of life and death over you? I can let you go. I can have you crucified. Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Ooh, can you imagine that coming from a man who's standing there before you having gone through what he's gone through? You know, wow. And Jesus speaks the truth. In John ten seventeen. it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this is our Savior. And we're reminded that He was not at the, at the mercy of, of circumstances. And God is so much larger than that. And the things that happened to him happened just as they were supposed to. And rest assured, other times, you know, I think we shared last week, he tells Peter, don't you know, when he chops off the guy's ear in the garden, don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? Put up your sword. I, I can take care of this. But he's done what he's done willfully for us. The scribes and the Pharisees grew to hate John, John the Baptist, really because of his frontal assault, uh, because of his specific judgment against them and against their motives, you'll recall, when they appeared for baptism. I mention it now because Jesus is seen as being associated with that. He's certainly in the minds of the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, regarding John the Baptist, because John gave witness to him, right? And said, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said of him, and he must increase, but I must decrease. Later on, John 3, he would say that. So Jesus has those concerns, uh, but yet at the same time, he's doing just exactly what he said, only those things which his father has laid out and commanded him to do. He was faithful to the very end, so everything worked out precisely. It's just like putting a puzzle together, if you will. So that's what we have. He's been presented publicly, um, but in some terminology, he's not yet, still not yet begun the official preaching, if you will. His ministry has begun. You could say, as we shared, it began when he was baptized. But after uh, he finishes this first year, uh, he's going to get down with this message of, repentance and so forth as he moves through the countryside. Actually, if you look at Luke 4.14, the word is translated teaching. It talks about him teaching in the synagogues. And then again in 4.31 and 32, it uses the word teaching. And yet in 4.43, uh, he says uh, that I must preach in other cities also. So he's looking ahead to a particular play a, t- a particular time in his ministry. And then again in 44, it mentions preaching, not, not teaching. So that's what we have. So we leave, yeah. You said, I mean, you know, Jesus talked about teaching in synagogues and whatnot, and, 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 and Paul went and, and preached in the synagogues as well. And I, and I totally can understand Paul having the authority to go because of his status. But, but Jesus didn't have that status. So did they have, I mean, could anybody and teach in the synagogues? Or is it just a place where the people were just all gathered and he starts talking to people? 
Well, it's, you know, it's, it started with him when he was 12 years old, you know, and he went in and he, whatever credibility, and I, and I want to say it like in a worldly sense, that from the scribes and Pharisees looking at him and the, and the teachers of the law, they knew who he was. But you'll recall when he, and we'll look at it a little bit, when he got to his hometown there in Luke 4, they don't seem to have that inclination about him. Because they say, is this not Mary and Joseph's son? Where did he get all this? How does he know this? How can he teach this? So all he had to do was, you know, hand him a, a scroll or at least give him, it wasn't a pulpit, but, you know, get him up there. And once he started talking, it's just like the folks said, never a man spoke like this man. When they sent the temple guards out to get him and to arrest him and bring him back, they said, we couldn't. And this goes right along with what we're talking about, his time. Never anybody spoke like this guy. There was something about him. Interesting, too, if you look at Isaiah 53 and you, and you get all this information about how, and I'm, I'll get back to you, <laughs> how you're looking, at, you're looking at Jesus. You don't see anything the Bible says that would draw you to him. Okay, He's not head and shoulders above everybody else. I would say he's very Jewish looking. Okay, I mean, he's, you know, <laughs> he's there. He's dark. And, uh, but when he spoke, and there's such a contrast there. Uh, but he he grew into that. People began to know him. Okay, obviously he was viewed there at twelve years old as some kind of prodigy or whatever. How does this kid know this stuff? He talks like he's been sitting around talking to Moses. All right, well he had been. Yeah. So you know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, but now culturally, did would they allow him in? Uh, I can only say uh, apparently he wasn't an official. Uh, you know, I mean, he didn't come like from the feet of Gamaliel or anything like that, but they allowed him to come up there and read from the scroll. And perhaps reading from the scroll itself might have been something that, uh, you know, even young boys could have done. I'm not sure. I'd have to look and find out more about that for you. Yeah. But at any rate, he was up there, and, you know, he read Isaiah 61 is what he did. And we'll get there in a moment. But this says in verse 13, talks about him leaving Nazareth. And it says, in, as it continues from verse 12, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, well, just a brief look at these places. Of course, Nazareth, you know, that's the place where Jesus grew up. That's the place where he was with his parents and working with his dad. He came to adulthood there. Um, he goes back to Nazareth again in Luke 4. We'll look at that in a moment. Well, let's just look at it now. Um, if you want to flip over, and I, I wanted to pick, pick this one out because I think it has so much to say about where Jesus is right in Matthew, having had this experience. Uh, <clears throat> I can find my place here. Rejection in Nazareth beginning in verse 16. Listen, chapter 4 of Luke. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and took up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable 
year of the Lord. So you see the, the flavor of what Jesus is putting forth here. It's interesting that he stops there too because if he were to continue on reading in Isaiah, then he'd be reading about judgment and so forth here in a moment. He's not, that's not what he's about right here. That's not what he's doing. So he stops right there. In verse 20, And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I think it's interesting there, again, Dan, from a cultural standpoint, that appears to be the manner. Somebody read and then they sat down. Okay. And he began to say to them, now he continues on, in authority. All right? Perhaps, and I have to say perhaps, I can't say for sure, but perhaps kind of going against the cultural expectation, he, he began speaking, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what do you think about that? What's that going to say to them? This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What's he, what, would, what did he just read? Yeah, he's, 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 he's reading about the Messiah, that's what he's reading about. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you know where that comes from, right? When basically did the people say that? If you are the son of God. Yeah, come down from the cross. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel, now he's preaching, in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Okay, talking about God did not send his prophet to those people, what they can, you know, Jewish people. And he yet, yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there are many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only, and get this, Naaman the Syrian. Do you you hear what Jesus is saying? He said, this ain't got nothing to do with you being a child of Abraham. You know, later on, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 9, you know, not everybody of Israel is of Israel. Okay, this is a spiritual transformation. But are you kidding me? Naaman is the way it's pronounced, I think. Naaman the Syrian, do you remember the story with him? From what is it, First Kings 5? I should know that. I think that's right. Do you remember the story? Yeah, and this is a guy who raided Israel and stole away their people, their kids, their women for slaves and so forth. Yeah, he was loved. He was beloved because there was a level of goodness in him, much like the Roman centurion. People loved and cared about the guy, you know, even though they had a lot of authority for some reason. They understood, you know, take care of your people. And if you do that, they love you. Remember, they pleaded with him to do what Elisha told him to do. But he's a, he's a Gentile Syrian, okay? And he got grace. God showed him grace because of his faithfulness, because of his obedience. And Jesus knows that he's still speaking to these people who think they have something to bring to the table. And that same thought, that 
that same understanding continues to be pervasive in the hearts and minds of men and women today. And it's usually centered around their concept about their own goodness. And friends, you have to break through that. The only thing that can break us through that is the Word of God and the conviction of God's Spirit. So we see Jesus, what He's doing. He's, he's moving even closer and closer toward this specific message of repentance with these people. And the first thing you have to do before you can repent is what? Understand your need. Understand your need. And this is what He's doing here. Verse 24, is that where I left off? No, I got on up above that, didn't I? Yeah. 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Now before, it says they were receiving him. Oh, here he is. He's back in his hometown. I'm sure Mary and Joseph are so proud. Okay, and there he is. Speaking the truth would change everything, won't it? (laughs) That's what's going on here. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. And led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff. These people, pretty, they're pretty ticked off about somebody who would challenge their godliness. Wow. And this was a process to, you know, herding him up onto this cliff. A lot of times we talk about stoning people and you get the impression of somebody standing between the buildings and people just start picking up rocks and throwing at them. Normally, uh, in, in many cases, the stoning, I understand, would involve being thrown off of a cliff first and then all the rocks and stuff being thrown down on you. And that was a good stoning, okay? But again, as we said earlier, it wasn't his time. Verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, he went his way. How in the world did he get away from that crowd? Well, it was the supernatural hand of the Lord that got him away from that crowd. And we don't have a whole lot of additional information about that, but we know that's what happened. So that was his experience when he was in Nazareth. Okay, that's their lasting impression of him as he leaves Nazareth. Okay, and what do we know about Nazareth? Well, Nathaniel had an opinion about Nazareth, did he not? Yeah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Nazareth was, you know, historically we know it was, we'll say, insignificant, but there was no reason really for anybody to stop there or do anything. Or it's just a little place along the roadside where people lived, and that's where Jesus grew up. Uh, I don't think uh, Nathaniel's being, he's not being mean about it. You know, Christ has some nice things to say about Nathaniel later on, he's the guy, he's the Israelite in whom there is no guile. So his heart's, heart's right, he's just making an observation there. It also mentions Capernaum. Capernaum means the village of Nahum. Know much about Nahum? Nahum means compassion. This is the village, actually this is where uh, Matthew, the uh, Levi, that's where he had his tax office was in Capernaum. If you go there today, uh, it's virtually uninhabited, Capernaum is. Uh, But in that day, 
it uh, had a little more traffic going through it, as did much of Galilee, you know, being a kind of a trade center and so forth, having certain roads that came together. You know, it's interesting, though, when you talk about Capernaum, because later he's, Jesus is going to make some comments about Capernaum. I'll save the bulk of that <clears throat> until we get there. It's when he's talking to uh, John the Baptist in response to him. He gets off into um, uh, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, these other three cities that had been preached to but did not respond to the gospel. But just so you'll know, uh, he says, For if miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, talking about Capernaum, he says it or Sodom would have remained to this day. Now that is a particularly interesting verse to me. What, what's, there's a key word there. Um, that just throws my mind into pondering, all right? (laughs) It's the little two-letter word, if. Because Jesus is saying, listen, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, you know what happened to Sodom, right? If they had occurred there, which occurred in you, Capernaum, Sodom would remain to this day. If. Is anybody saying, oh, okay, if you know they would have responded, well, why didn't you do the miracles there? Okay? Sovereignty of God. That's all I can tell you. Sovereignty of God. I don't know what happened there later on, okay? I can dig and find it, but I didn't find it for this lesson. But that's what he's saying there, that it had not happened. You follow? But it could have happened. It didn't because... They, he didn't do those miracles there. He didn't do the ones in, in Sodom, okay, uh, that he had done in Capernaum, talking about Sodom. That's interesting to me, very interesting to me. And he also says, Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. We're Matthew chapter 11 again, beginning with verse 23, if you're looking at it. And he's saying something there about what? The degree of sinfulness, right? We often talk about, and you see the question, are there, de- are there degrees of sin? Well, there's certainly degrees of retribution, is there not? Yeah, because Jesus speaks of it right here. And we'll move on. Then he speaks of Zebulun and Naphtali. The whole region of Galilee had originally been given to these two tribes, along with the tribe of Asher. If you go back and look in Joshua But these two had refused or they weren't successful at obeying God and getting all of the Canaanites out of that area. So their failure to expel the Canaanites actually led to mixed marriages. It led to some pagan influence. And quite frankly, this whole region of Galilee, I don't want to, today we might, we might actually call it a little bit liberal. Okay. They weren't all that traditional regarding Judaism. And I think it's interesting that this is the place where Jesus went. This is the place where he, he goes and does a good bit of, of teaching here for a year. This is what they were known for. They wouldn't be considered you know, strict regarding you know, common Judaism and so forth. Not, not in this particular area. That wouldn't have identified these folks. So it takes us up to verses, uh, what, 14... 14 through 16. I'm going to read these together. They're all really one thought here. 
and I might just pull up short here because we're going to talk about darkness and light a good bit. I might save that for next week, even if it means maybe getting out about five minutes early today. We'll see. But look at verse 14 from chapter 4. He mentions these places, these cities, particularly Zebulun and Naphtali, and he says this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah writes, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, of course the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan. And he refers to it, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Isn't that amazing? This is what Christ has done. And where did he go? It's talking about this place, this place Galilee, this, this place that's, that's different. It's, it's not what you would consider in the... In the, uh, the their culture doesn't run in the, in, the, in, the, in the most strict of Jewish tradition. It doesn't. Yes, they're, they're Jews. But he's also been where? He's been to Samaria. What do they say of those people? What's, what's, what do we know about Samaritans? Yeah, that's the way they were referred to. And you've got all this... Uh, dispute going between these hardline Jews and the people of Samaria. And what did we say about Nazareth? Oh, nothing good come out of Nazareth. Okay, what's well, the same in Galilee? They were they were considered uh, they were Jewish, but they weren't strict. Okay, this is the place where he goes. This is the place where he teaches Capernaum, where there's so much going on that needs the Word of God, that needs attention. And that's where he goes. And I like the way Isaiah puts it. He refers to it as Galilee of the Gentiles. You've got you to throw that Gentiles in there. All right? Not Jewish. Gentiles. You know, Israel had forgotten even the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, who is to be blessed? Just the Hebrew people? What does it say? All the nations of the earth. All of them. It's not an exclusive club, so to speak. And Isaiah speaks of it, this this revelation, which comes through the teaching and preaching of Jesus. The truth of God's Word is referred to as a great light. And it says that this light has dawned. The folks, the light has come on. They can see, they can understand. Their, their guilt burden can be relieved by grace. This is what this is about. And this is just in the, the infant stages here of explanation. This is what Christ's life is about as He moves through and demonstrates who He is. There is a great light being shined upon a man's heart, a woman's heart, which brings with it great hope. Great security, great direction, great explanation and understanding about everything that comes into our life. But the most specific thing is that God's way, God's way of salvation is going to be made known and it's going to be made known clearly. It's going to be made known in unexplainable fashion, undeniable fashion. Even the unbelieving Pharisees couldn't deny who Jesus was. He couldn't deny His miracles. Ultimately, could not deny the resurrection. They had to make up a lie. So it also 
sheds light on the wicked human heart, does it not? We can see all that clearly. And it's going to be exposed even as we continue to go through Matthew. So you see all this now, I hope, more clearly as he's moving up to verse 17. He speaks here, though, of light and darkness. Darkness first. Those who are in darkness have seen a great light. It's the Greek word skotos. And it refers to shadiness or obscurity. And of course, darkness. But it's, it's a derivative from another Greek word, skia, which means specifically darkness of error. Error. E-R-R-O-R. Error. So it's not just an absence of light. It's talking about knowledge. It's talking about the Spirit. And it's in relation to not having all the information or being in literal area. error. Thinking that you're doing what God wants, but you're not. You're not. Because God's desire is centered around His Son, the person of Jesus Christ. You've, you've got a good example this week. If you've been watching this information, I alluded to this Wednesday night, for uh, this information about the death of Billy Graham. You've been watching any of this on TV. And, and I'm referring to how the news people are stumbling all over themselves so that they don't have to say Jesus Christ, okay? You're, you're hearing all this about what Billy Graham did. And we know Billy Graham, great evangelist, preached Jesus. But nobody wants to talk about They want to talk about how he preached love. I heard one Catholic priest that they were interviewing, he's up there, a young Catholic priest, he's talking about how monumental it was when Billy Graham met with Pope Paul and, and they came out of the meeting. He didn't say anything about what Billy Graham had said, but he said, and the Pope said that we are brothers. The Pope said that he and Billy Graham were brothers, as if to bring the folks together. And he said plainly how big a deal this was for Catholics. He said, because before that, people said, well, Catholics aren't even Christians. Duh. So, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to use that. Yeah. He's, right, he's trying to use that, Right. To, to show, in essence, that the, the great and notable Billy Graham, as he's saying, put his stamp of approval on that. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. So, don't say Jesus. Don't say Jesus Christ. Don't say Messiah. Because if we need a Messiah, if we need a, if we need a Christ to pay our sin debt, then there's a judgment, right? Yeah, there's a change required. He's talking about darkness here and light. The word light, the Greek word phos, P-H-O-S, luminous, if you will. That which is luminous, it refers to a fire or fire light. Something that's bright, something that gets our attention immediately and sheds light on the darkness. John would say that the darkness did not comprehend it. That is to say that the darkness did not overcome coming the truth was made known and no matter how much darkness you put out there the light overcomes it isn't that what we're faced with in our even in our christian life to respond to the light to respond to what we know as truth was it something i said (laughs) no (laughs) see brother you guys you guys go serve (laughs) you guys go serve it's a wonderful thing
a wonderful thing. The blessed Christ first ministered, as he said, to Galilee of the Gentiles. Not some more sophisticated area, not some renowned area, if you will, in a particular city or region that the people would have been, you know, a little more hoity-toity about. Not the learned, not the proud, not the pure Jews of Jerusalem, but as... MacArthur quotes in his commentary, he says, but to the mongrel, downcast, non-traditional, mixed multitudes of Samaria and Galilee. These are the ones who had the great honor. And it's just like when Jesus goes and he calls Matthew, and then he goes and eats with Matthew, and at that moment he starts getting all this bad press about eating with sinners, eating with publicans and sinners. He tells them plainly, and Luke records it in chapter 5, verse 30. He says, The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And the emphasis there, when he says, I've not come to call the righteous, he's talking about people who see themselves as righteous. And we've covered that already this morning. You got to know you have a need, right? You got to know that you don't measure up. You got to know that there's sin on your heart, that you are guilty. And that's what drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what drives us there. He's come to call sinners. In fact, Later on in, in Matthew, by the time we get up to chapter 13, because of this response, you know, he's called first to the house of Israel, because of their response, or maybe I should say more clearly their non-response, then he begins speaking in parables at that point in Matthew 13. And they ask him why. And he says, well, he says, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not from that point on. It's a dangerous thing to hear the Word of God and to have the Word of God constantly coming to bear on your heart and life, constantly drawing us to repentance and saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. It'll cost me too much. I've got my pride. I've got to save face. After all, I was baptized when I was six or whatever, whatever. We have to follow the Word and the, the power of the Word, and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to respond to it in our heart so that our burden can be relieved. And Christ becomes our all in all. A person who came for baptism in that day was saying a lot publicly. And it's the same today, is it not? We're going to baptize what, on the 18th, I think? This month? Yeah. We're coming publicly and saying, I love what we do here at Faith Community Church with our baptismal candidates. When they stand in that water and they say, they speak, they give a witness, not just in their submission to baptism, but they give a witness about their life and about their needs and how the Word of God changed their life when they responded in faith and repentance. That's a wonderful thing. Jesus is going to continue. I'll pick up next week because I pulled a number of verses throughout the Bible. Started looking at John because John deals with light more than anybody else. And we'll just pick up there and finish this up next week and maybe get into a couple of other things.